For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In the Old Testament, a little three-chapter book, Habakkuk. And I want us to read this evening the first 11 verses of chapter 1 and also chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee, Violence, yet thou dost not save. Why dost thou make me see iniquity, and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists, and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping, their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence, their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was thine anger against the rivers? Or was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride on thy horses, on thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers, the mountains saw thee and quake, the downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered voice, uh, uttered forth its voice, it lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of thine arrows, at the radiance of thy gleaming spear. In indignation thou didst march through the earth. In anger thou didst trample the nations. Thou didst go forth for the salvation of thy people, for the salvation of thine anointed. Thou didst strike the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Thou didst pierce with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed into scatterous. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. Thou didst tread on the sea with thy horses, on the surge of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones. And in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds' feet and makes me walk on my high places. Here you have a tremendous book that spells out for us a philosophy of history. Did you notice in the first chapter and the last, and we could go throughout the book, to find how God says he raises up this nation to do this? He does, has everything in control. That in Habakkuk you see the picture of a sovereign God 
controlling every aspect of life and moving nations around at will. And at the heart of all of this movement is the people of God. That God moves history around in relationship to God's covenant people. If God's covenant people are unfaithful to Him, God will raise up nations like Babylon to punish them and to chasten them and to purify them. Once God's people are purified and they come to repentance, then God causes the nations of the world to be their friends and God delivers them from oppression. But the point throughout this book is, is that God is in sovereign control of human history. And God moves all the events of history around for the sake of of his people and their destiny. And when we study the Protestant Reformation of the 16th and 17th century, when we study the history of the church, when we, we, we look at our own lives and we see people suffering for the faith and we see people making sacrifices to make sure that we have a country that's free and just and godly and then we see the way it caves in and the way it's corrupted, when we see a people who fought so bravely against tyranny and now we see America as a land of tyrants and we're, t- and we're tempted to ask why and stand in confusion. Understand that everything that happens to us in this world is orchestrated by God for our own welfare and our own improvement. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so as we study the 16th and 17th centuries, we have seen in those centuries God doing some great things to his church. God causing the Reformation to come to pass in England and for the gospel to spread rapidly, the gospel of the Reformed faith and be spread throughout the world. And we see the United States and our church here a result of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th and 17th century. And so when we see ourselves outnumbered and we tempted to be depressed at the oppression of the enemy, we can with Habakkuk in the very last verses say, I see all this. I have to wait for the day of distress. I know it's coming. Israel's not going to repent God's judgment. So what am I doing in the meanwhile? Rejoice. Rejoice that my God's in control and that he's doing everything for my benefit and for his glory. So, whenever, so there is a philosophy of history. That history is his story. I mean, that's trite, but that nevertheless gets the point. It's his story. It's the story of God moving around nations and peoples and cultures to accomplish his purposes. And at the heart of history and the value of a nation is determined by its relationship to the covenant people of God. Nations rise and fall in accordance with with the way they treat the church of God. Do you remember what God said in Genesis 12? He said, those that bless you, I will bless. And those that curse you, I will curse. And the destiny of nations is directly related to what they do to God's people. And the spiritual nature and character of God's people determines what these nations do to God's people. If they're spiritually strong, the other nations will bless them. If Israel's backslidden, the other nations will oppress them. Well, let's go back now to the 17th century, to the glorious revolution of 1688, and to the reign of William of Orange and his wife Mary, William III and Mary II. And remember from last week, William of Orange was invited to England and requested to come to England to deliver England from the tyranny of the Stuarts. That the Stuarts were so bent on being in absolute control of church and state and every segment of English and Scottish and Irish society, that for all practical purpose, the British people were in slavery. People were dying by the thousands because they would rather be dead than than compromised. And particularly it was the Presbyterians who were dying by the thousands because of their stand for freedom against the tyranny of the Stuarts. Well, time had come that James II had become so tyrannical and so fanatically Roman Catholic. You remember he was a Roman Catholic king who tried to bring, tried to end the Reformation in England and bring England and Scotland back under the tyranny of the Pope in Rome. 
and he'd gone too far so that even the Anglican Church, that had always stood with the Stuart tyrants against the freedom-loving Presbyterians and independents, that even the Anglican Church and bishops stood against James II. And so they wrote and asked William of Orange and Mary, both of them had a legal claim to the throne, you remember. William's mother was the daughter of Charles I. William's wife, Mary, was the, was the uh, daughter of James II. And so they both had claims to the throne. Uh, William of Orange was a Dutchman. You remember we talked last week what a great and courageous man he was, a brilliant man, a godly man. His wife, Mary, the godliest queen England ever had. Left England, came, left Holland. He was a Dutch Calvinist, a Dutch Presbyterian, came to England and uh, so intimidated James II that he fled England, put up a fight in Ireland, uh, and was decisively defeated after several other battles at the Battle of the Boyne, B-O-I-N-E. And then they were crowned William and Mary, the King and Queen of England. Lest sometimes it's easy to think that things that happen in the obscure past are there just for curiosity's sake and bear absolutely no relevance on the uh, present unless you're a history buff. <laughs> well, the Atlanta Constitution. Let me tell you something about the Atlanta Constitution, Sunday, July the 14th. Here is a story of the Orange Men and the violent confrontation they have in Northern Ireland against uh, the terrorists and the radical Roman Catholics and the like. The orange men are the men who self-consciously follow the principles of William of Orange. And they have grown into, unfortunately, a secret order of well over a hundred thousand people. They put out this uh, little handbook the celebration, the Orange Institution, to this very day, there's an organization all over the world called the Orange Institution to propagate the principles of the Glorious Revolution and of William and Mary. And uh, let me just read to you. Now, it's a secret order, and I don't believe it like secret orders, and sometimes today it may put its anti-Catholicism above its love for the Reformed faith, but nevertheless, to show you, it uh, does the, the influence of things in the past on the present. For instance, here's the 12 marks of an orangeman. Now, this was printed in 1990. And, uh, you know, I mean, the Glorious Revolution was in 1688. Here's, this, here's William's picture on the front. All right, here's 12 marks of an orangeman. One, he's a professing Christian. He, professing Christian. He follows the golden rule in all his personal and business affairs. Two, he is a Protestant. He upholds the great Protestant principles of freedom of conscience for all people. Three, he is a loyal subject of Her Majesty the Queen. His alliance is unswerving and unlimited. He regards the throne as the center of all secular power, justice, and law. He is a good citizen. He's law-abiding. He respects and observes all laws. He's a good neighbor. He's concerned with the welfare of man. He's generous and charitable. He's generous not only with his worldly goods, but also with his time, his thoughts, and his deeds. He is a leader. He prepares himself for the responsibilities of leadership. He's informed and vigilant. He's aware and responsive to events and issues around him. He is a loving and responsible parent. He accepts total responsibility for the support, health, and education of his children. He honors and glories in his heritage. He accepts his origins as part of himself, and he sees himself as an extension of his forefathers. He is a gentleman. He respects the sanctity of women and defends their rights. He is a brother. He practices the highest level of fraternity. And so, you see, they're not far off. In fact, what's amazing throughout this book, you see references to the Reformed faith. They say we are Reformed. So the point is, we're not talking about obscure history just for history buffs. We're talking about trends in history that lay at the root of the war in Ireland to this very day. The war in Ireland, by and large, is between the Roman Catholic uh, independents who want Ireland separated from England versus the Protestants, primarily Presbyterians, who are orange men who want a Protestant Ireland in allegiance to the monarchy in London. Now, we may not agree with everything on either side or anything on one side, but the point is that uh, things that happened back in the 1700s, uh, uh, 1600s, still affect very sincerely our life today. Uh, I want to uh, 
you were given two things when you came in, two pieces of paper. One was a modern shorter catechism that just, just for your interest, read that not now, or you'll not listen to the rest of the sermon if you read, start, get into it. But the other thing I want you to read is on William Prince of Orange, the man of prayer. This is a chapter from that big orange book that I just uh, showed you. I want you to impress you something, uh, something with the, the godliness again of William III. The secret to his greatness was that he was a man of sincere prayer. He lived a life of prayer, permeated his whole life. It was the source of his strength and his comfort and all the busy responsibilities and dangerous adventures that he went through. Whether he was in the palace or the court or the army camp, William always made it a strict rule to find time to pray. You see this especially in his attitude toward the sacraments. William of Orange, and as King William, took the Lord's Supper four times a year. And in, in good Presbyterian fashion, by the way, according to that time, I think it should be different and have it every Sunday. But back in those days, the Anglicans had it every Sunday. The Presbyterians had it four times a year. And his having it four times a year did not mean that he didn't appreciate the Lord's Supper as much as the Anglicans. It meant he was identifying with the Presbyterians who had it four times a year. He would always spend two to three days preparing himself to take the Lord's Supper. This is the King of England, who would pray and fast and search his own soul for two or three days before he'd take the Lord's Supper. And some of the prayers that he used have been preserved. And I want to read to you some of the prayers that he used regularly uh, in his everyday life to prepare himself for the Lord's Supper and various other things. For instance, notice on that piece of paper, the bottom left-hand corner. Here you see a prayer that he would pray to prepare his heart to take communion. I come to thee, now this, bear in mind this isn't a preacher praying, this isn't an average man, this is the king of England praying. I come to thee, O my Lord God, from whom are the preparation of the heart and the good disposition of our minds for thy worship and service. Fit me, O Lord, by hearty contrition for my sins and a sincere resolution of a better course to approach thy altar. Accept of the expiation which thy Son hath made of all my transgressions by the sacrifice of himself, as a lamb without spot and blemish. Let the remembrance of my sins and of his bitter sufferings for them pierce my very heart and engage me forever to love and serve him who laid down his life for me. Cleanse me, O Lord, from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, that I may be a meek guest for thy holy table and a real partaker of those blessings and benefits which are represented in the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. Strengthen, O God, all good resolutions in me. Enable me by thy grace faithfully to perform the conditions of that covenant which I made in baptism and intend to renew in the holy sacrament by dedicating myself entirely and forever to the service of my blessed Redeemer who's loved me and washed me from his sins in his own blood. To him be all honor and glory, thanksgiving and praise, love and obedience forever and ever. That was a king praying. And then notice down at the bottom of that page, you see a confession. You see what a lowly view of him have himself. You see kings, you think of arrogance and strutting around. Well, here's an ad, and you remember how humble Cromwell was. Well, notice what William III says about himself in this prayer. Most gracious and merciful God, who are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, I desire to humble my soul before thee in a deep sense of my own vileness and unworthiness by reason of the many sins and provocations which I have been guilty of against thy divine majesty by thought, word, and follies of my life, which have been many and great, and which I do now with shame and sorrow confess and bewail before thee for thy mercy's sake in Jesus Christ. Pardon, O oh my God, my manifold neglects and omissions, and slight and careless performance of the duties of religion, without due affection and attention of mind, that I have not served thee with that purity of intention, and with that sincerity of heart, with that fervency of spirit, with that zeal for thy glory, with that care and diligence and constancy that I ought. Make me deeply sensible of the great evil of my sins, and work in me a hearty contribution for them, and let the sense of them be more grievous to me than any other evil whatever. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, and according to thy tender mercies, forgive all my transgressions for the sake of my blessed Savior and Redeemer. Then this article has a prayer of intercession to see that not only does he have a, a proper view of God's glory and the redemption of Christ and his own sinfulness, but he also has a heart for the whole world. 
Now, I'm not going to read everything in this prayer, but I am going to skip around and read some of the things so that you can see what, this, what concerned this man. I mean, he was the head of two states. He was the head of a Dutch Republic he, in Orange. He was the king of England. He, his goal in life was to stop the advance of Louis XIV of France and the uh, attempt to uh, break the back of the Reformation and bring Europe back under the Roman Catholic Church. And notice what his greatest weapon is, his intercessory prayer. Let me just read some paragraphs. I, thine unworthy servant, desire likewise humbly to intercede with thee, the God and Father of all, for all mankind, that thou wouldst be pleased to have compassion upon their blindness and ignorance, their gross errors and their wicked practices. Send forth, I beseech thee, thy light and thy truth to scatter that thick darkness which covers the nations and overspreads so great a part of the world, that thy way may be known upon earth and thy saving health among all nations. See, the primary thing he prayed for is evangelism. Bless and preserve thy church dispersed over the face of the earth. Restore it to unity and concord in the acknowledgement of the truth and the practice of righteousness and goodness. Remove out of it all errors and corruptions, all offenses and scandals, divisions and dissensions, all tyranny and all usurpation over the minds and consciences of men, that they who profess the same faith may no longer persecute and destroy one another. Next paragraph. I beseech thee more especially to be merciful to that part of thy church which thou hast planted in these kingdoms, Scotland, England, and Ireland. Pity the distractions and heal the breaches of it. Purge out of it all impiety and profaneness. Take away those mistakes and mutual exasperations which cause so much distemper and disturbance and restore it to piety and virtue, peace, and charity. Endue the pastors and governors of it, i.e. elders, with a spirit of true religion and goodness, and make them zealous and diligent to promote it in those who are under their instruction and care. Next paragraph. And I beseech thee, O Lord, of thy great goodness to bless all my relations and friends, particularly my dearest consort, the Queen. I acknowledge thy special providence in bringing us together, and thereby giving me the opportunity and means of being instrumental in rescuing these nations from misery and ruin. She says, all I am I owe to her in essence. And as thou hast been pleased to unite us in the nearest relation, so I beseech thee to preserve and continue that entire love and affection between us which becomes that relation. And if it be thy blessed will, and thou seest it best for us, bless us with children to sit upon the throne of these kingdoms and to be a blessing to them for many generations. God didn't do that. Be merciful also, O God, to my native country. Holland. Next paragraph. Bless all my allies, O righteous Lord, that lovest righteousness and hatest falsehood and wrong. Do thou stand by us in the maintenance of that, that just cause in which we're engaged, that is, the liberation of Protestantism from tyranny. And in thy good time, O Lord, restore peace to Christendom. Put an end to those bloody wars and desolations wherewith it hath been so long and so miserably harassed. Next paragraph. Be merciful, O God, to all that are in affliction or distress, that labor under poverty or persecution or captivity under bodily pains and diseases. So I read that to impress you with the godliness of William III. Let me tell you also about how God got William III and his army safely to England. Uh, people of that day were amazed at what happened in God's providence concerning winds and storms in the English Channel. Uh, it was so amazing that to this very day there's some reference or another to it, except in modern secular, secular anti-Christian books, to the storms and the winds the day and the days William landed in England. Word had gotten out that William was coming. So there was some attempt on the part of those uh, of the Navy and the Army faithful to James II to stop him. And so they were sent out to stop him. There was a wind, later called the Protestant wind. There was a wind that blew his ships speedily and safely to England, which, because the nature of the wind, made it that same wind, made it impossible for the enemy ships to approach him. And I want to read to you Lord Macaulay, who didn't like Calvinism at all, but who has a very good book you can still read today called The History of England, Penguin Book. Here's what Lord Macaulay said about that uh, God's providence and the landing of William to rescue Protestantism in England from papal tyranny. 
The weather had indeed served the Protestant cause so well that some men of more piety than judgment, see, he's not the greatest Christian in the world, that some men of more piety than judgment fully believed the ordinary laws of nature to have been suspended for the preservation of the liberty and religion of England. Exactly. Now, remember when did this take place? 1688. Anybody will remember what happened exactly 100 years before in 1588? There was another storm. It wrecked the Spanish Armada and saved England from the tyranny of, of Roman Catholic Spain. Exactly a hundred years before, they, they said, these people who had more piety than judgment, the Armada, invincible by man, had been scattered by the wrath of God. Civil freedom and divine truth were again in jeopardy, and again the obedient elements of creation had fought for the good cause. The wind had blown strong from the east, while the prince wished to sail down the channel and turn to the south when he wished to enter Torbay, had sunk to a calm during his disembarkation, making it easy, and as soon as the disembarkation was completed, had arisen to a storm and had met the pursuers in the face. Nor did men omit to, uh, uh, to remark that by an extraordinary coincidence, the prince had reached our shores on a day on which the Church of England commemorated by prayer and thanksgiving the wonderful escape of the royal house from the blackest plot ever devised by Papist, the gunpowder plot. Carstairs, a Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian, whose suggestions were sure to meet with attention from the prince, recommended that as soon as the landing had taken place, public thanks should be offered to God for the protection so conspicuously accorded to the great enterprise. This advice was taken and with excellent effect. The troops, taught to regard themselves as favorites of heaven, were inspired with new courage, and the English people formed the most favorable opinion of a general and an army so attentive to the duties of religion. In other words, this wind blew him across the channel. He had to east, from the east, he had to turn south, so then the wind blew south, and then when he got where he wanted to land, the wind quit blowing. And everything was calm, and then when all of his troops got up, a wind from the west came and blew the enemy away. Sure was lucky, don't you think? <laughs> all right, now let's talk about the uh, revolutionary settlement. You'll see that word in history books. It has to do with the reconstruction of uh, the English monarchy. The Stuarts and the tyranny of the Stuarts have been put down. Now, finally, there's a firm, solid Protestant and his wife who are the king and queen of England. And now the whole nature of the English monarchy is going to be changed. This wasn't new. William III simply completed, as we've seen, what Cromwell started back in the 1640s and in the 1650s. And so when they were crowned king and queen, a bill of rights was completed in 1689. A Bill of Rights. Now remember the revolutionary settlement of William and Mary and the Bill of Rights of 1689. I bring up things like this because we need to recognize that documents that we love just don't appear out of nothing. I mean, the Declaration of Independence didn't just up and appear. What happened in the Declaration of Independence? Well, you've read it, I'm sure, and you know that it does two things. Number one, it spells out the complaints of tyranny against the colonies on how the English government has tyrannized the colonists. And then secondly, it spells out the basic rights of Americans. That's 1776. 1787 through 89, you have the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights. The Constitution of the United States spells out the principles of representative government, limited government, controlled government, giving the federal government no more power than what's specifically delineated in the Constitution, all the rest of the power reserved for the states. And then it has a Bill of Rights in which it clearly spells out the limits of the, of the uh, of political power and what our rights are as citizens. Well, now, they, these guys, as great as they were, just didn't think this up. I mean, there was a whole history in, behind them from which they drew. For instance, back in the 1200s, what do you have under King John? In England, you have the Magna Carta, which, which begins to spell out in primitive form and not always correct form some of the basic rights of Englishmen. 
Then in 1638, you had a... Obvious specific root of our Declaration of Independence and Constitution in the Solemn League and Covenant, 1638. That was an official alliance between Scotland and England and the General Assembly of Scotland, as well as the Parliament of Scotland, the Parliament of England, and the Westminster Assembly, in which both nations uh, publicly committed themselves and covenanted together to advance the Protestant Reformation, to preserve the advance of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland and to advance the Reformation in England to reform the churches according to the best models of reformed churches throughout the world. That would be particularly Scotland and Geneva. And in this, that making Scotland a covenanted nation. We're going to come back to this another time when we talk about the covenant banners. But that's where these nations covenant together to a certain destiny and a certain responsibility. And you know where the word federal comes from, I trust. It comes from a Latin word that means covenant. So that a federal government is a covenanted government. Then the next document after that was the instrument of government in the 1640s, the first written constitution England ever had. And who produced the first constitution emphasizing the freedom of Englishmen from tyranny, representative government, bicameral legislature, uh, the separation of powers in executive, judicial, uh, judicial and uh, legislative, and a whole society based upon the law of God. The, that's all in the first constitution of England, the, inst- the instrument of government. Who wrote it? Oliver Cromwell and his people. And Cromwell reigned under the institution of government, the basic principles of our government right there in Cromwell's. Then after that you have the Bill of Rights of 1689, which defined the revolutionary statement, a settlement, which changed the character. Do you know that the, that the monarchy in England has never been the same since Cromwell and William III? I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but since William, there has never been a tyrant to sit on the throne of England like the tyrants that preceded William III. There's never been a Charles Stuart. There's never been a James Stuart, praise God. There's never been a Henry Tudor. There's never been a Mary Tudor. There's never even been an Elizabeth Tudor. The English monarchy has never been the same since William put into effect what Cromwell began to preach. So now we have this Bill of Rights. And it did two things. It first of all spelled out all the crimes and condemned all the illegal acts of the Stuart kings. It said that kings of England cannot suspend the laws. They cannot use their prerogative to get around the laws. They cannot levy taxes without the consent of Parliament. What was that? This is 1689. What the colonists shout in the 1776, no taxation without representation. They just didn't think that up. That was all around all the way back to William III. This Bill of Rights said that the uh, crown could not create special courts, which it always was doing to persecute the Christians, and it could not maintain a standing army in times of peace. Then this great document went on to assert the basic rights of Englishmen. It says that, that Englishmen have the right to petition the king for any grievance they may have. You remember the Stuart kings would punish you if you brought any complaints against his uh, reign to you. This Bill of Rights gave all Englishmen the right to bear arms. We just didn't think that up. It gave all Englishmen the right to free elections and to frequent parliaments. It gave Englishmen the right to enjoy freedom of speech and to be secure from excessive fines, excessive bail, and cruel and unusual punishments. These are things that are reflected in the United States Constitution. Our founding fathers didn't think them up. They got them from the Bill of Rights of William III, who drew from the instrument of government of Oliver Cromwell. So a series of laws were passed, redefining everything. There was an act of secession that said no Roman Catholic... And no one married to a Roman Catholic could ever be sit on the throne of England. It also determined that the successors of the crown would come through William's wife, Mary. If she didn't have any children, through her sister, Anne. And if she didn't have any children, through the heirs of William by another wife. 
Then another toleration, another act was uh, passed, giving freedom of worship to all Protestants. Now remember, that had been the big thing. The Stuarts, the Tudors were always passing laws, making it impossible for Reformed preachers and churches to preach and hear the Reformed faith without any interference, because the kings and queens of England all claimed to be the head of the church. And so now William III, good Presbyterian that he was, realizing he's not the head of the church, declared that all Protestants now would be free to worship God according to the, uh, their understanding of the Word of God as long as they did two things. As long as they made a general oath of allegiance that they would not commit a revolution against the crown. And secondly, that they would declare themselves against the Pope. And if you didn't declare yourself against the Pope and against Roman Catholicism, uh, then you did not have the freedom of worship. Also under William, this new freedom of worship did not apply to anybody who didn't believe in the Trinity. Unitarians, liberals, did not have freedom of worship, nor did the Roman Catholics have freedom of worship because the Roman Catholics were so identified with the tyranny of, of France and Spain, etc., that they'd had to fight with through the centuries. And then also they passed a bill making it illegal to keep, for the king to keep a standing army in times of peace. Passed another bill said that Parliament can only sit for three years. And you have to have a parliament every three years. There was another bill that passed that gave liberation to the press from the tyranny and censorship of the king. And then there was another act that in 1701 that specifically spelled out who would inherit the throne. Queen Mary, and the reason they did that is because in 1694, William's wife Mary died without a child. Her sister, Queen Anne, lost her only child, a 10-year-old in 1700, and had had 15 miscarriages. So there were no direct heirs. Therefore, it was provided that the secession would go to the Electress Sophia of Hanover, the granddaughter of James Stuart I and to her Hanoverian heirs on the condition that they were Protestant. These were Germans. And it was specifically stated, quote, that whosoever shall hereafter come to the possession of this crown shall join in communion with the Church of England as by law established. Therefore, the crown passed after Anne to whom? George I, a German king of England. Well, how important is this revolutionary state settlement? One of the great historians, Englishman, his name is Lord Acton. Maybe you've heard him because conservatives love to quote him. Uh, the verse, uh, the, the, the statement of his that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, let me give you another great quote by Lord Acton. Lord Acton wrote a letter, I believe it was to Robert E. Lee after the Civil War. And he said, in essence, we have lost more in the fall of Richmond than we won in the victory at Waterloo. And the we is Western culture. So he had an interesting insight into things. Here's his assessment of the revolution of 1688. He said, that the revolution of 1688 and the whole revolutionary se settlement and the redefinition of the monarchy was the greatest thing done by the English nation because it made a civil authority limited, regulated, and controlled. And prior to that, it was none of those. Sort of reflects George Washington. Did you see the bumper sticker George Venable's given out? Looks like a radical statement till you see it's by George Washington, America's last great president. Here's what he says. Now, you remember why Acton says the glorious revolution is the greatest thing that happened in England? 
because it made civil authority limited, regulated, and controlled. Now, why was that great to him? George Washington gives you the answer. He said, and I quote, government is like fire, a dangerous servant, and a fearful master. Shades of William III and of the, what happened there. Well, there were some people who were not satisfied with the revolutionary settlement. Who do you think they might be? You're right, the old Scottish Presbyterians, the old strict Covenanters of Scotland, and a real strict group of them called the Cameronians, following a man by the name of Richard Cameron. And uh, we'll talk more about him later because he was a great and courageous man. But these strict Presbyterians in Scotland and in England still felt themselves bound by the Solemn League of, and Covenant of 1643. In that covenant, they believed that the nations of England and Scotland had entered into a covenant with God to which they were to be faithful as long as the world lasted. And because of that perspective, they had problems with William III and the revolutionary settlement. And here's some of their problems. It wasn't perfect. And many of the problems that we see in England today result from the weaknesses of the revolutionary statement, and I believe the, ex the accurate assessment and criticism of these old strict covenanters and Scottish Presbyterians. Its first failure is that it did not renew the Solemn League and Covenant, that the new government did not pledge itself to the preservation of free Reform Presbyterianism in Scotland, and it did not pledge itself, though it had been committed by its forebears to do so, the new administration did not commit itself to the reforming of the English church according to the model of the best reformed churches in places like Scotland, under Knox and Geneva, under Calvin. That was the first problem they had. The second problem they had with William's revolutionary settlement was its Erastianism and the establishment of, Anglis Ang of the Anglican Church as the official church to this very day. Now notice what the revolutionary settlement did. It made it illegal for anyone but an, somebody who was an Anglican or a member of the Anglican Church to be the king. And so the Scottish Presbyterians saw in that still the remnants of Erastianism. Now, what is Erastianism? It's important to know what it is. There's nobody that hated Erastianism like the Scottish Presbyterians and the Westminster Divines. But there's nobody that's more charged with the heresy of Erastianism as the Scottish Presbyterians, the Westminster Divines, and the Christian Reconstructionists of the 20th century. And yet we're the greatest enemies of it. What is Erastianism? Erastus was a, a man, a, a European man back in the 16th century, or 17th, that era, who believed that, in essence, that the church was under the state. That there was not a, an institutional separation of church and state. That the church was a department of state. And that the king was not only head of the commonwealth, he was also head of the church. And his authority was over the church as well as the state. In both, his word was law. Uh, that still holds true to some measure in England, uh, in places like Germany, where there's, and in the United States, where there's an attempt to control the churches and tell the churches what to do and tax the churches, etc., uh, and tell the churches what they can teach and what they can and can't do in their schools, etc. Uh, and yet, these old Scottish Presbyterians said, we're not Erastian. We believe in the functional institutional separation of church and state. And you remember what Andrew Melville said, who was the follower of John Knox. We'll get to him because he was a great man. If it hadn't been for John Knox just overshadowing everything because of his greatness, you would have heard more about Andrew Melville. Andrew Melville was a great and godly man and a fighter. But he said to the king, James, and before this was thrown in prison, he said, Your Majesty, in Scotland there are two king kingdoms. One kingdom is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in which, sir, you are neither king nor prince, but only member. And in fact, you are only God's silly vassal. I love those Scottish guys. Well, there's the attitude that the church isn't under the state. Now, in our confession of faith, I, I read you the verse that summarizes what we believe. And let me go back because, because thousands of people have died because they believed in this one paragraph. So in the back of your hymnal, turn to the Westminster Confession. I've forgotten exactly what page it's on, but it's the chapter entitled Of Church Censures. It's chapter 30. Chapter 30 of Church Censures. This is worth memorizing because this is the, it was the issue in the 17th century. This is why the king slaughtered men, women, and children, families, whole congregations. And this is why people were willing to die because they believed this. But today is one of the most radical statements you can find. The Lord Jesus, first paragraph, chapter 30 of Church Censors. Tell me what page it's on. Only one person. John, what page is it on? I couldn't hear it. Everybody was talking. 688. 688. First paragraph. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, has therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. Now, that's still radical. I'll tell you how radical. Let me put it in a modern way to show you how radical it is. Jesus Christ is the king of the head of the church, and he has formed in his church a government in the hands of church officers distinct from the from the. Uh, Federal government from the civil magistrate. That means that in a church like Chalcedon or in the visible Catholic Church, the U.S. Constitution has absolutely no authority. Now, you say that to the average person today, and he will tell you that'll sound radical. That'll sound like that guy's a militia man. That guy's a whatever they are. That because uh, no, it's just the, the the logical, inescapable conclusion. That if Jesus Christ is the king of the church, and if his word is the only constitution of the church, then no other man-made constitution has any authority in the church over the church. You're under the constitution. The constitution has authority over us as citizens. But as far as the church is concerned, we are distinct from the civil magistrate, and the United States Constitution has absolutely no authority whatsoever in and over this church. Mr. Clinton doesn't believe that. I doubt seriously if Mr. Dole believes that. Because it sounds so radical, but it's simply the outworking of Cromwell, William III, most particularly the Scottish Presbyterians and the old Covenanters. And so they didn't like the Erastianism. There's a third thing that these old Presbyterians didn't like about the revolutionary settlement. And I don't blame them. Although Lord, Lord Macaulay cannot stand these Cameronians. These strict Presbyterians did not like William III and the revolutionary settlement because of its failure to hunt down James II and his cohorts and punish them for 28 years of bloody persecution against the Scottish church. For 28 years, Charles II, James II, and their cohorts had persecuted the children of the Scottish Church, had imprisoned them, exiled them, branded them, shot them, hanged them, drowned them, and tortured them. And the revolutionary settlement not only did not include any seeking out and punishing of the, perse of the persecutors, but rather, some of the worst of the persecutors were graciously received by the royal court and given places of honor and pensions. So there were some great things about the revolutionary settlement, the strength of which we enjoy to this day. There were some weak things about the revolutionary settlement. Its tolerance of evil, its Erastianism, its compromise of the truth, which weaknesses we still feel the effects of today. Well, James II, you know, the guy that was kicked out, James II finally died 
September the 16th, 1701. Now we're up into modern times almost. We started out, we've been talking now about the 15 and 1600s. Uh, we started talking about, we yeah, well, spent several times leading up to Henry VIII in the, in the middle 1500s, followed by whom? His little son, Edward VI, the godly Protestant, who didn't reign for long, and he died, and he was followed by whom? Bloody Mary, who, who wanted to kill every Protestant in England, and finally she died, and she was followed by whom? Lady of, yes, right, Queen Elizabeth. And then Queen Elizabeth reigned for some 40 years and tried to blend Catholicism and Protestantism, and in the process persecuted the church. And she finally died and was followed by her cousin, James Stuart I, who was James VI of Scotland. Then James I died, and he was followed by his son, Charles I. Then Charles I lost his head uh, because of his tyranny, and Oliver Cromwell came to power through the 1650s. And then he died in the late 1650s, and the monarchy was restored under Charles Stuart II. Then after a long reign, he died, and James the Stuart, the Roman Catholic, came to the throne, fulfilling every prophecy that Cromwell made. And then James the Stuart was kicked out, and you had the glorious revolution of William and Mary. Mary dies, uh, James the Second dies. A few months after James dies, William died, March the 9th, 1702. His wife had already died, 1694. And so his wife's sister, the daughter of James II, Anne, A-N-N-E, -N -N -E, was crowned Queen Anne upon the death of William III. Queen Anne was a faithful daughter of the Church of England, particularly of the High Church Party. That is, she was just about an inch shy of being Roman Catholic, but she was Protestant. And some historians have tried to paint her as another Elizabeth II. But let me give you a humorous but accurate description of her by a great English historian by the name of Maurice Ashley. Concerning Queen Anne, who brought England into the 17, into the 1800s, uh, into 18th century. He said, whereas some historians have tried to paint her as a minor Queen Elizabeth, it's difficult, he said, to treat this gouty, that is gout, this gouty, obstinate, slow-witted little woman so seriously. She was respectable, dowdy, and dull, though her homely virtues were not to be despised. Devoted to her drunken husband, she had borne him some 18 children, not one of whom survived the rigors of early life. She had all the Stuart characteristics including a passionate loyalty to her favorites until they lost favor and she had extreme love for her church. Her only hobby was eating. Her gout and general ill health made administration and politics a nightmare for her. But she bore herself bravely and occasionally showed glimpses of common sense. Now, the 1700s was not much of a century compared to the previous two, spiritually, doctrinally, theologically, for the church. The state of the church in England began to change in the last years of William III, and most particularly under Queen Anne. Those passions over religious questions that led people to the scaffold in the earlier part of the previous centuries were not so strong as they were a hundred years earlier. The church was becoming more closely allied with society. The preachers were becoming a very respectable class in society. Outside the official church were the nonconformists. You remember the nonconformists were those people who would not conform to the act of uniformity saying that you had to be an Anglican. I mean, these were the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Independents. These were the nonconformists. Outside the official church, the nonconformists settled down and were content to remain on the defensive. Now they were had freedom and they were allowed to meet in their own chapels. 
so that all they wanted was to guarantee their right to conduct their services in whatever way they pleased, to bring up their own children in their own religion without interference from the state, to safeguard the freedom of worship in their meeting houses, and if they had to sacrifice all their political rights and responsibilities, they'd do so. So the members of the Church of England and the nonconformists, that is, the great previously the great Puritans, became Christians who were content with things as they were. The Christian religion gradually sank into a stupor in England from which it would not be shaken until the preaching of George Whitfield in the 1740s. But something else had happened, too. The outrageous, immoral behavior of the leaders of society in the courts of King Charles II and King James II were frowned upon by the faithful daughter of the Church of England, Queen Anne. And following her example, there was a rise in popular books and writers and teachers inculcating the virtues of decency and charity and the reformation of manners and various other external things but not dealing with the heart. There was a lot of talk about religious liberty and about toleration of various viewpoints, but it was they had different meanings than they did back in Cromwell's day. You remember Cromwell's heart desire was for religious freedom in England for all Protestant, Orthodox Protestant religions. And if you weren't Orthodox and Protestant, you could not have the freedom of worship, which is a biblical mindset and the way it should be, and the way it once was in the United States. But now religious freedom was less defined by George Whitfield, and I mean by uh, Oliver Cromwell, and was more defined by John Locke. John Locke and his writings began to influence the middle classes, the educated classes in England. John Locke was the son of a Puritan, he enjoyed an Oxford education, and when he died in 1704, his political, philosophical, ethical, religious theories were absorbed by the educated classes throughout England. His final authority was what? In two words, common sense. That's the authority by which all viewpoint, all revelations, all ideas are to be judged. He's been called the father of empiricism. Empiricism is that doctrine that says all knowledge comes from experience, not from revelation. He was a Christian, I suppose, of sorts, but he believed, to use his words, quote, revelation must be judged by reason. If it's true, it's reasonable. If it's not reasonable, even if it's in the Bible, it's not true. And so he's been called the first secular philosopher. And his influence still holds sway. Twenty years ago, one of the leading evangelicals in the United States professed to be reformed, I believe, was president of Fuller Seminary. His name was Edward J. Carnell. Said a sentence like this, or a similar one, professed to be an evangelical. He said, bring on your revelation." Let them bow before the bar of human reason, if they're to be believed. And you still have locking influence. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, on the front page, on the front cover is a photograph of a courtroom. You're looking at the courtroom from the judge's bench, which means you are the judge. The Word of God is on trial. And you, the judge, must render your verdict on the Word of God. And so, you see, ideas have consequences. And things that take root in the 16th and 17th centuries still shape our thought today. And it was this emphasis on common reason, on putting reason above everything else, that redefined words like religious liberty and tolerance. And whenever the non-Christian, whenever non-Christian thought and non-Christian writers start talking about tolerance, meaning don't be bigots and only allow Protestants religious liberty, but allow people of various other religions the freedom to worship 
as they please. Be tolerant. Whenever the anti-Christian speaks of tolerance, always watch out for a new intolerance. Because when they talk about the toleration of all religions, they mean the toleration of all religions but one. And that is fundamental evangelical orthodox reformed Christianity. There is no freedom of religion for evangelical Christianity in many of the places of power, like the schools in our day. Well, let me finish this right quick by talking about what happened after Ann died. And then next week we're going to talk about the covenants, one of my covenanters, one of my favorite part of history. But I just want to wrap up a couple loose ends in two minutes. Toward the end of Queen Anne's reign, she had no children. The law said that the crown was to go to the descendants of the Empress uh, Sophia of Hanover and the Germans. So it was, they weren't particularly have a German speaking, uh, anxious to have a German speaking king of England who couldn't speak English. So at the end of Anne's reign, it seemed possible to some people that she and other powerful figures might recognize James II's son as the King of England. Now, remember his second son, James Edward Francis Stuart, known by his friends as James III, known by his enemies as what? The Old Pretender. You remember, conveniently, right when James II's throne was in question, his wife up and has a baby. She hadn't been able to deliver a baby throughout her life, and at the most critical junction in her life, she gives birth to a baby who's not only a baby, but a male heir to the throne of England. And so the rumor was spread, I don't know whether it's true or not, but it was believed by almost everybody, that this was not the son of of, uh, Mary of Modena and of James II, But this was a baby of a woman named Mary Gray, a washwoman, that was smuggled into the queen's bed through a washpan and said to be the son of the king of England, hence the old pretender. Well, toward the end of Anne's reign, there were people who thought the old pretender might be the uh, next king of England, except because they weren't particularly anxious about to have these German Hanoverians. But there was just one little problem. The law said no Roman Catholic could be the king of England. You had to be a, church, a member of the Church of England. So if the old pretender, James III, was going to be the new king of England, he had to become an Anglican. 1714, he refused. Staged a little bit uprising. It was put down. And the Protestant monarchy for the Hanover, Hanoverians was secure. But there were still other Jacobites afoot. Jacobites were supporters of the descendants of James II. They were Roman Catholics. And so after the old pretender was put down, he had a son called the young pretender. Uh, There's a biography of him called Bonnie Prince Charlie. You may have heard of that name. Bonnie Prince Charlie Stuart, Charles Stuart III, who wanted to be king because his his, uh, granddaddy was king. And so he actually joined, left Roman Catholicism and joined the Church of England. Staged a little uprising, 1745. Nothing happened with reference to that, so he went back to the Roman Catholic Church. James III is buried in St. Peter's in Rome, died in 1766. Now I want you to see how close it's getting to us. James Stuart III dies in 1766 and buried in St. Peter's in Rome. Charles III, after his failed uprising, went to Rome to live, accepted the faith again, and was comforted by Roman Catholicism and bottles of whiskey. He was a drunkard. When he died in 1788, he passed on the heir to the crown of England to his brother, Henry IX. Henry Stuart IX, who was an intelligent man, and throughout his life he kept up all the pretense of being a king, but he'd been a Roman Catholic cardinal since 1747, so he couldn't be king. 
and besides that had become very wealthy because of his position as cardinal, though he did lose all of his wealth in the, Roman, uh, in the French Revolution. But after the French Revolution, he was put on a very generous pension by George III of American Revolution fame. After George III died, George IV, on up into the 1800s, built him an expensive monument and erected it in St. Peter's in Rome, where Henry Stewart, the last Stewart, was buried in 1807. Praise God. Let us pray. We do thank you, Father, for the end of the Stuart tyranny. We thank you for Cromwell. We thank you for William III. We thank you for the efforts that they made, the things they did right. We pray, Lord, you'd help us not to make the same mistakes they made, to learn from them, both in their responsibility toward culture and society and in their own personal lives. Help us to imitate their integrity and their godliness to avoid their error and their failures. Raise up greater men to lead your church to greater heights in the future. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. And in your wrath, remember mercy. For Jesus' sake, amen.